For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. With a hello to our friends in Scotland, followed by a lead item that sounds like something out of Monty Python. Or out of my childhood, because my father really did read Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rime of the Ancient Mariner to us while we washed the dishes. Oh, the fun we had. Unlike today, because you see, now, apparently not content with coming for American Thanksgiving cranberries, climate change is also causing an upsurge in divorce among albatrosses. Now, I know what you're thinking. Unhand me, greybeard loon. Uh, or maybe not, if you weren't subjected to the hilarity of Coleridge's sailor who inexplicably shoots an albatross with a crossbow, is forced to wear its remains round his neck, hence the metaphor, and winds up gaunt, haggard, and buttonholing people at weddings. But the Boston Globe's climate producer and former member of the Sarah Lawrence College Workers' Justice, Diversity, and Activism Planning Committee will not release your lapel until you've heard that, quote, albatrosses are fiercely loyal creatures, end quote, who usually couple up for life. Alas, quote, in recent years, they've been splitting more often. Increasing water temperatures and climate change may be to blame, according to a study published by the UK's Royal Society, end quote. In what wise, you ask? Well, despite a propensity for extra pair copulation, in case you think giving something a long name makes it better, under 4% of albatross couples normally bust up. But now, at least among 15,000 of them in the South Atlantic Falkland Islands, it seems that when the water is cool, it's only about 1%, but when it's warm, as many as 8%. And if you're thinking that's a pretty rubbishy scare story, you're right. And not only because there are a lot of albatrosses out there from a lot of species, but they do face real issues, like about 100,000 a year being snagged by commercial long-line fishing and drowned, and invasive species like rats and cats eating their eggs and their chicks, but not from their marriages being in hot water. See, the big problem with this tale of woe is that if albatrosses have evolved adaptive behavior to cope with bouts of warmer water, it must have been coming and going for a long time. As we knew all along, right? From the Holocene climatic optimum to the Eemian. Once again, this is a remarkably ahistorical outburst of alarmist cawing. It turns out that the albatross family evolved at least 30 million years ago, although, believe it or not, the science on that point is not settled. But not even Michael Mann will tell you that it wasn't warmer in the Paleogene than today, whereas Wikipedia will tell you that it was, so the reporter just had to Google. Surely activism at least taught you that skill. Stories like the albatross divorce epidemic are not just unscientific. They've lost all pretense at science. Yet everyone swoops in on them like an albatross on a rotting squid. Look, they may be spectacular birds. The largest ones have 11-foot wingspans on 22-bound bodies. But at the risk of spoiling the mood, they do look like glorified seagulls, and they are, among other things, scavengers like a lot of journalists. Thus, The Atlantic swoops in with It's Not You, It's Climate Change, and the BBC with Climate Change Causing Albatross Divorce says study. Now, it's also true, to hear Coleridge tell it, that if you kill one, you'll end up with a seabird necklace, a long gray beard and glittering eye, tortured conscience, and a hard time getting wedding invitations. But it is not true that emitting CO2 will get you any of these things or an upsurge in invitations to second albatross weddings. And speaking of not getting anything, apparently Canada's vaunted climate policies under green dreamboat Justin Trudeau have accomplished the square root of bupkis. Quote, Canada has had the worst record among the G7 countries for reducing emissions of greenhouse gases since 2015, the year the Liberals took office, end quote. 
And if you're thinking, well, sure, his opponents would say such a thing, that was the Federal Environment Commissioner. Can it be that governing is hard and getting rid of affordable energy without causing catastrophe is impossible? Gosh, why wasn't he told? To be fair, Trudeau is building on a solid record of failure, stretching back three decades across party lines. But at some point, if you swoop in as the savior of the universal human race, you're expected to do some saving. The National Post reports that the Environment Commissioner said, quote, we can't continue to go from failure to failure. We need action and results, not just more targets and plans, end quote. Which, unfortunately, is the sort of thing that, if you have to be told, you won't understand it. Also in the National Post, columnist John Iveson gives Trudeau and his associates what for over spending so much time and energy inventing implausible new pledges to save the entire planet that they forgot to prepare for the bad weather they insist that we are causing in particular places, for instance, British Columbia. You know, for our own part, we wonder whether many environmentalists begin to understand the meaning of nature red in tooth and claw, let alone know that we owe the phrase to Alfred Lord Tennyson, speaking of classic British poets. But even if you do think nature used to be entirely benign and that we only recently expelled ourselves from Eden with a fiery blast of CO2, the question is, what now? Pardon me for interrupting myself, but YouTube did recently limit the ads on two of our videos. We don't know how far they're going to take it, but please do make a pledge, one time or monthly, small or large, so we can keep producing the videos and the newsletter. And now, back to me. As Iverson's colleague Kelly McParland had written earlier, quote, the fun part of being an activist is hollering into megaphones, waving placards in street demonstrations, chanting slogans at protest meetings, and enjoying all the media attention such antics draw, end quote. And McParland thinks this noise-making, quote, does work to raise awareness and create pressure, but it's a rich coincidence that while the grandees were confabbing in Glasgow, the waters were about to pour down into British Columbia's Fraser Valley because, for all the talk of cutting emissions, no one had thought to invest equal time, effort, and money into protecting against disaster in the interregnum between now and when Nirvana arrives, end quote. Now, most climate activists resist talking about adaptation, possibly because if it works, there's less or no need to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions, fossil fuels, capitalism, patriarchy, and so on. But governments are expected to protect citizens from obvious dangers, at least in their spare time. You know, admittedly, they don't have much of that, precisely because they think they can do everything and end up accomplishing little or nothing. A press release now informs us that, quote, Government Industry Potato Working Group assembles to help affected farmers in Prince Edward Island, end quote, by stuff like bringing together, quote, the full value chain of the PEI potato sector, end quote. Say, Guys, could you harden infrastructure against flooding first, and maybe an EMP attack while you're at it, and let farmers grow potatoes? Speaking of politicians actually doing things, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson does seem to be doing something on climate, the reverse march on net zero. The Telegraph reports that, quote, a key part of the government's net zero strategy that would have forced up petrol and heating bills has been scaled back amid concerns of a cost of living crunch, end quote. Wow, has Bojo finally discovered that making fuel expensive is bad? <laughs> Not so fast. The Telegraph adds, quote, The scaling back of the plans reflects pressure from Tory MPs over how Boris Johnson will deliver his pledge to make the UK a net-zero carbon emitter by the year 2050, end quote. How? Not weather. Why? Well, quote, Opinion polling suggests broad support for tackling climate change, but backing drops when voters are confronted with personal costs that could be associated with making the economy greener, end quote. Like, when they're 
house catches fire or gets washed away or their energy bill forces them to choose between heating and eating. Just saying. Actually, what I'm saying is it's a reality thing. And unfortunately, down in the United States, fresh from signing legislation that throws billions more at climate change, President Biden just ordered the release of 50 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Reserve to try to stop gas prices from rising. Why not, you may say, since the U.S. government doesn't face any potential crises where a strategic reserve of oil might be useful, unless you count Taiwan, Ukraine, all that silly foreign stuff. Oddly, though, the gesture didn't work. The price kept rising, possibly because the amount released only covers about 70 hours' worth of U.S. consumption, which apparently surprised Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. But the U.S. has no monopoly on nonsensical or hypocritical policy. Quebec's government, here in Canada, just piously declared that province's commitment to BOGA, which is COP26 speak for Beyond Oil and Gas, while making no moves to stop importing oil. And why should they? They don't produce the stuff, they only burn it. Unless something happens to the infrastructure and they can't get it to burn anymore, and suddenly realize that it was actually the stuff of life, not toxic pollution. Tilak Doshi commented in Forbes that American energy policy is now right out of Alice in Wonderland. But they're not the only ones. In fact, America's European allies crippled their own energy industries on purpose and then got blackmailed by natural gas exporting dictator Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus. Weird, huh? And here's something else weird. A 1920 or 2020 tour went to sunny South Australia, specifically Robe, home of the eponymous lighthouse, and a long temperature record, which lets us show cool, comfy 1920 and climate crisis black in 2020 and invite you to tell them apart with a magnifying glass. Good luck, mates. In the newsletter, we also continued our look at what the latest IPCC report really says, this time about rivers and flooding, especially in light of the dogmatic alarmist claims that the recent BC floods are entirely due to greenhouse gases, as opposed, say, to failure of local governments to react sensibly to warnings based on the long history of flooding in that region. So, AR6, Chapter 8, Section 8.3.1.5, has a lot of verbiage about spatial heterogeneity of the signal and multiple drivers. But still, they're pretty sure, quote, the amount and seasonality of peak flows have changed in snowmelt-driven rivers due to warming, end quote, but they're also sure that, quote, land use change, water management, and water withdrawals have altered the amount, seasonality, and variability of river discharge, especially in small and human-dominated catchments, end quote. So, there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's hard to separate out the human footprint. But shh, don't tell journalists. Also don't tell them that, courtesy of CO2 Science, we hear that a team of researchers who looked at trends in major floods across North America and Europe over the past eight decades found, quote, no compelling evidence for consistent changes over time in major flood occurrence during the 80 years through 2010, end quote. Now, if you're one of those people who worries that climate change might bring bad weather in the future, that finding isn't hugely important. But if you're one of those who say that it already did, well, where's the beef? Or, in this case, the unattached seabird. At least, not attached to another seabird, attached to somebody's neck. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and that's my glittering eye on the week in climate.